0: This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve him in their neighbor, for whom the words of the creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is the show for all of those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. I'm your host, T.L. Putnam, and I'm so glad that you've joined me today as we continue on our Lenten journey. And Lent has been uh, already just a very different Lent for me this year than I've ever experienced. And I'm really actually quite uh, profoundly impacted. I was going to say enjoyed, but I don't think that's quite the, the right word. Uh, I'm profoundly impacted by my Lent this year. And in large part, it's because I'm changing the way I look at my Lenten penances no longer is this, uh, an opportunity for me to see, uh, and test my metal on how, how strong I can be on the things that I give up. Uh, no longer is it, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to give up all social media or I'm going to give up all this big thing that, um, because I need to give it up. And if I give it up, wow, how holy I'll be rather this year, uh, I gave up a very simple thing, um. Each night, my wife and I, after the kids went to bed, we would sit down on the couch and we would binge-watch whatever our favorite show was. We'd uh, happen to be watching at that moment, and we'd do uh, two or three episodes, and then we would look at one another and say, "Oh my goodness, it's so late. Uh, let's just go to bed." And we would go upstairs and we'd be exhausted. And that was our our ritual. That was our evening routine. It, I don't even remember quite when it started, um, but probably for the last seven or eight months, maybe a year, that was what we did at night. We would um, put the kids down, kind of collapse. And of course, we have eight kids. And so after you get them in bed and you've done all the dinner and the, the baths and whatever else is required, uh, we just kind of collapsed and said, that's it. We're, we're clocking out for the night. Let's do something that doesn't require any thought. Uh, and so that's that's what we would end up doing. And so this year, what I did for my Lent um, is I gave up that television. I didn't. I didn't give up the, the sitting down with on the couch with my wife. But rather, I said, you know what? I, this is not really the best use of our time together. It's not deepening my relationship with you. I'm not getting to know you any better. Um, and so, I want to know about your day. I want to really engage with with you and be together and not just in the same location, because it's possible to be with someone and not be together with them. Uh, And so this was, this is rather my Lenten penance, the thing that I've given up. And in doing this and a couple of other things that I've read, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we read Augustine on the show. Uh, We read him a lot, but the specific one was talking about Lent and the Lenten penance as a means to expand our desire And that's really been sticking with me. And so as I have given up this simple thing of uh, that binge watching television at night, it has really um, brought me to a place in my spirit that I think is a a little bit more tender to the touch. I'm, I'm tearing up a little bit even as I talk about it, which is maybe a little bit out of the ordinary for me. And it's this realization, not that these things are bad and I need to get rid of them, Um, but that I am attached to them in the wrong way and they are preventing me from the thing that I want even more. We talked last week about, um, it was not hard for me uh, earlier, I guess about a year and a half ago, it was not hard for me to get rid of my upright piano that I really scrimped and saved and used some tax money back uh, a while ago to put that all towards buying this this nice piano, because I, I like music and I I've long have played the piano and I, I wanted that in my house. And about a year and a half ago, I got rid of it and it was easy for me to do because someone had given us a grand piano. And so it was easy for me to give it up, even though I had scrimped and saved and desired and wanted and become attached to it because of the better thing that was coming. And so to look at Lent and not as the subjugation of desires but as the expanding of desires because something better is coming has just really, I think, deepened my spiritual understanding of this Lenten process. And it's really made me anticipate what it is that God is going to uh, put in this enlarged space. What is God going to to grant me by his grace— as a result of me giving this thing up, as a result of me stretching my heart. uh, Now, you know, previous years when when I gave something up for Lent, I would do poorly. And that's not an uncommon experience. We give up something big and we do awful at it. And we keep going back to it and we keep desiring that thing. And we desire it more and more and more the longer that we're away from it. I haven't experienced that this year. This year, I have experienced the desire for the greater thing. And I don't even know what that is yet. I don't know what it is that God is going to to put in this place and, and to cultivate and to allow to blossom in this place by his grace. Um, I just know that it's there. And so I look with anticipation, not only at the, the growing relationship uh, that I will have with my wife, not only from that being uh, strengthened, but because I know that God called me to this and that he has something specific that he wants to place in my life. And so I really encourage you, if you're having trouble with Lent, um, ask God, God, what, you know, I, I came up with this penance because I thought it was going to challenge me to be closer to you, but what do you want me to receive this Lent? What do you want to give me as we move closer uh, to Easter? This week, I've had the great privilege and pleasure of having um father simeon spitz who is a benedictine monk from saint gregory's abbey in shawnee oklahoma and he's been at my parish giving a parish mission walking us through uh using scripture scholarship that he's been doing for the last several years in rome at the biblicum uh, using the book of exodus and and overlaying it onto our lenten journey and it's been very fruitful to, for me to, to look at and to meditate on and to contemplate and to look at the fact that God wanted to deliver his people and he did so in some unexpected ways and in some ways that uh, were maybe a little bit perplexing to the people who were being rescued. And we look at them and we know the end of the story. And so we say, well, gosh, they weren't very grateful. Or surely if I had seen you know, the the 10 plagues and the the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud, surely I would have behaved better and believed more than the people in the book of Exodus did. And yet I'm not so sure that we would. I'm not so sure that um, we trust a whole lot better than they did. It's just that we know the end of their story and we don't yet know the end of our story. We see that God brought them into the promised land and so we can say, well, of course God's going to bring them into the promised land. Why? Why are they... Uh, fussing so much. And yet each day we face uncertainty. Each day you and I have an experience of, of maybe a little bit of trepidation at what tomorrow holds, or maybe some assumptions about what tomorrow holds that don't allow for the Holy Spirit to come and guide us. Uh, and, and so we find ourselves very much in the same place that the children of Israel did, with a God who promised to be with them a God who loved them and provided for their every need, but not in the way that they were hoping for and not in the way that they expected. And so here is a God who challenged their every perception because their perceptions about who God was were shaped by their culture, by those who were around them, by the Egyptians and the other other nations. Well, you and I have the same thing. We have our expectations of who God is and how he will behave based on the cultures that are around us. And God will always break out of these boxes because he wants to show us who he really is to us. And we've read these stories many times. We've heard them conveyed to us, but there was something about the way that Father Simeon expressed them that really made them come alive in a new way. And so I wanted to share that with you. So let's go ahead and join the conversation that I had earlier this week with Father Simeon Spitz. Father Simeon, we're we're all pretty much familiar with the story of the Exodus. We've read the stories before or heard the stories told to us. And yet the way that you, uh, through your studies uh, at the Biblicum, the way that you have unpacked those has given fresh eyes to see it now, not just as a, a history and as something to be uh, understood about our our heritage of faith, but really as prescriptive and helping us to see the way that we can grow in our spiritual life as we seek also to follow God through our own wildernesses. Uh, Today, as you were talking, you talked specifically about the way that God would move from the camp in sometimes unpredictable ways for the purpose of seeing if his people would follow and i I feel personally in my life that that happens very often that i I don't not only do I not perceive where God wants to go or why certain things are happening, but sometimes it 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 doesn't jive with what I think I know about God. And so it's like, well, do I do I go that way, or is that just my own thoughts? or is that uh, in entering into some uncertainty based on my inability to to see the logic behind it, but of course, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and His ways are higher than our ways. So, Father Simeon, thanks for coming on the show today. It's a pleasure to be here. So, let's talk about this specific thing, the the idea of God calling us through the difficulties of our life into radical trust
1: and obedience. Well, that's what the whole wilderness journey is about. God, from day one, is trying to form a people who will be his own. Uh, A royal nation, uh, consecrated chosen people, uh, who will then hopefully spread that under the ends of the earth, that being the ultimate goal. I I truly believe that was the original plan. And from that very first action of deliverance, he began teaching his people, showing his glory, showing his might first, uh, showing his benevolence, his mercy, his patience, but also constantly testing, not testing and attempting to scare away or frighten, uh, or to uh, to weed out the weak but testing that was meant to to train and prepare to be that holy people that he was calling them to be and that's primarily what the the desert journey is it's a forge for a people to become his own
0: well and, and in this this forge this test case you have um, the ability for god to to bring a numerous different scenarios uh, to see, okay, well, eventually you're going to face this, and and you'll be comfortable. And how are you going to handle that when when it hits you next time? So let's let's deal it here, deal with it here. When you are so dependent on me for your survival, that um, that when it comes up again, it won't be a scary thing, or or you'll be prepared for it. It won't be the actual event. This is a, a time of
1: practice. So maybe it's best to skip to the end to put that into perspective. God is leading his people into a land that is populated. Uh, There are people there. When Moses sent in his spies to reconnoiter the land and they brought back all the fruits in abundance, uh, they did. They brought back the goods and they said, it's exactly like Moses said, oh, it's a wonderful land. But... (laughs) But, but there are giants in the land. They're enormous. There's huge guys. The cities are well-walled. There's no way we could ever possibly unseat these people. And they turned away scared. That was the, the cause of the wandering for the remainder of the period. They got there in a couple of years, but then they wandered for another 38 until that generation passed. God knew what was in the land. He knew that there were strong cities and giants and all that goes along with it. Everything those spies said was true. The blessing was there, but also the challenge of the peoples that would have to be moved out. The battle ahead was strong, and God was trying to train the people to say, look, I will be with you. Mm -hmm. I will be your strength. It doesn't matter how how strong you are or how great the enemy. What matters is my might alongside you. Uh, Be with me, and I will be with you, and you need not have any concern so long as you follow my will. That's the ultimate goal, that that infinite trust, that that confidence that wherever God leads, wherever that, that pillar of fire and cloud would pick up and carry off to, all we have to do is follow, seek unreservedly, and he'll be with us along the way. Mm-hmm. He'll be with us along the way. And so through various trials, beginning with uh, a little bit of hunger in the beginning before he gives them uh, the gifts of uh, first meat and then the ongoing gift of the manna, uh, through periods where there were drought and the people thirsted uh, he was testing trusting mm-hmm. don't don't worry about tomorrow today because i'm with you today and i'll be with you tomorrow
0: we often look at at their experience in the desert and say well you know they they watched god deliver them through the red sea they were perceiving every day the fire the pillar of cloud uh, by day and the fire by night they they see god working all of these miraculous deeds Um, surely that would be enough, right? Surely when they get to a place where God calls them in, that would be enough. And yet at the same time, we look at our own lives and the way that God provides for us on a, on a given day. And when we get asked to do something that's uncomfortable, uh, that we, we second guess. Well, Maybe this is just me. Maybe this is God calling me into it. But if I step forward, what happens if it's not God and then I fall flat on my face? For us, it would be a matter of losing a little bit of pride. But if they, if they're not sure that this is God and they go into the land and then all of a sudden, oh well, we were supposed to do a little bit more preparation. We were supposed to be a little bit more uh, put together and and have some strategy about us. Uh, oops. That there's no do-over at that point because the people would have been destroyed. And so there is that that sense of, can I really trust not only that, that God is with me and that n- not just that he was with me yesterday, but that he will remain with me because this is not the picture that they have seen of any deity in the lands that are around them. The, the deity have always been very capricious and dependent on or uh, their favor depended on whether or not you showed up and not whether uh, they themselves as a deity were faithful. And so they're trying to project onto God these pictures of the foreign deities that they've always understood. And so they're uncertain, is, is God really going to show up tomorrow? Is there going to be manna on the ground tomorrow? Or was this kind of a one-day thing? And so I need, to, I need to do my due diligence to, uh, to prepare for that. And of course, we fault them for it because we know the end of the story. But we're very much the same way in our own trust of God,,
1: oh, without a doubt we can look let's go back first to the the fact that they had these amazing prodigies for the Israelites in this desert journey. there's no doubt there's no doubt in the miraculous. It's not a matter of whether or not if God is real or other. Mm-hmm. you can't see these things and deny them this right. is This is a reality hitting them square in the face. It's not a matter of doubt if there is a god or even that a god has has worked these prodigies the doubt is whether or not he will actually sustain them mm-hmm. and be loyal and be faithful as he's promised that he will be uh, i often wonder sometimes if it's not just god testing the people but the people testing god along the way right. uh, okay so you say you're going to be with us well what if right. uh, what if i do this are you still with me mm-hmm. what if what about this one and 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 they 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 put god to the test The doubt of whether or not God will be with us is actually the doubt that creeps in most uh, in people's lives. Uh, Very few people uh, who, who have faith begin to completely doubt. They may begin to wonder whether or not God answers their prayers, whether or not God is listening, whether or not he is the faithful God they've been taught that he is, or whether he's some capricious deity. Um, off on his cloud and, and sort of minding his own business, who's who's forgotten the world, which is certainly not the case. It's mm-hmm. certainly not the case. Uh, I often think that we have no fewer proofs of God's fidelity. We just have to learn how to look right. <laughs> along the way.
0: We're talking today with Father Simeon Spitz. Again, he is a priest of St. Gregory's Abbey in Shawnee, Oklahoma. He's also the vocations director, and so if you feel a stirring to go on a little bit of a journey yourselves, you should give him a call and see what what God may have in store for you. You know, when I when I think about being led by God, and I grew up Protestant, and so I had a different perspective of what it meant to follow Jesus Christ, um, I tend to think of, okay, well, they, they say that the The narrow road is the road to heaven, that narrow and straight path. And so I've got this picture of a mountain that's steep and narrow and straight and just going straight up the side of the mountain. And it's like, okay, well, if I'm following God and I'm following him well, then I should follow him in succession. And day one leads into day two, leads into day three. And I can, you know, like a West Texas road or or a West Oklahoma road, it's, you can see... (laughs) A twenty twenty miles down the road, you can see the city that you're going to, and it's straight in front of you, and there's no uh, derivation, right? No, no deviation from that road, and um, and this was not my experience of following God, and and so I became frustrated because I thought I was following poorly, and I was getting yanked around because I was doing the wrong thing, and God saying, no, it's not over there, it's over here, and the next day it's flipping around the other way, and yet from your interpretation of of the Exodus and therefore of our Lenten journey. This is part of learning to trust day by day, and it's not so much that God wants us to go right today so that we can end up uh, five miles to the right tomorrow. We might end up back in the same place, but he wants us to go right today so that we can learn to see him and follow where he leads us.
1: It's a curious feature. So at the very beginning of the book of Numbers, we hear the, the laying out of the various clans. And whenever they would camp out, the the ark would be in the very center of all of that. Of course, Moses and Aaron, at the opening of the meeting tent, the Levites closest. But the other tribes were all scattered around, to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west. And on different days, and this is the first journey, remember, this is the journey to the promised land. They've not been sent wandering yet. They're on their way. They're on their beeline path, actually, the direct track. Even so, based upon how a horn would blow, different sides of the encampment, would have to pack up and begin leading wherever the cloud would follow. So everybody knew, okay, we're going roughly north by northeast. That's that's the game plan. <laughs> uh, so, so why is the trumpet blasting for the southern tribe today? Mm-hmm. What's going on? Well, God was saying, follow me. Follow me to the south. Okay, now we're going to go a little east. And the people had no idea. But God knew where he was leading them first. Mm-hmm. Uh, first as an act simply of trust, follow where I lead, being principal. But we also hear when we come back to the wandering story, all of these peoples who were in the land that they avoided on their first journey. Hmm. So there are nations around them that wish to do battle, that are willing to attack. And I wonder, the text doesn't make this explicit, at least I, I have not found it, I could be wrong. But I sometimes wonder if that south today, instead of north as would seem the right cause, might have been to skirt the land of Edom the first time around. Uh, to avoid the Amalekites for a day or two before we actually have to do battle with these people. God knew who was there. He knew the terrain. He knew the journey. Mm -hmm. The people had no clue. And what might have seemed to them to be God's winding path was actually the safest and most secure route from the very beginning. But that made it no less trying. Right. It made it no less trying. You mentioned that, that narrow road that goes on for absolute miles. And yes, that's easy to follow because I know where I'm going. Right far more difficult is that narrow road on the edge of a cliff Mm -hmm. that winds back and forth and you never see what's coming up more than a few feet ahead of you. And that's what following God is. Right. (laughs) That's more the mode of God leading us. Oh, look, there's a (laughs) switchback. Take one step forward, not travel forward a hundred miles and turn right. Right.
0: Yeah. So now let's take a look at this and move this into the context of our own spiritual journeys outside of the, the Exodus and into to our exodus from sin. I love that passage in, um, in the Scriptures, in the Gospels, where it talks about Jesus talking about the exodus that he was about to undertake. Uh, and, and so, too, as we are participating in the Paschal Mystery, we also participate in this exodus. We have similar problems. We have these similar issues of trying to discern what is it that God is saying me to, to me today, where does God want me to be today? What are some ways that you have experienced in your spiritual journey of how to recognize, to uh, to hear and discern the message for today that God has for you? Where is God leading you today? How do I how do I figure that out, and how do I then walk it out?
1: Okay, so that's about a three pronged approach. Uh, let's take it first to the the idea of the Exodus itself, and the Linton journey, and then come back to how we might understand that, that, that daily walk and, and to understand where that, that spirit is leading us in, in daily life. So first off, life is a pilgrimage. It's a pilgrimage toward God, God who is our greatest good, our origin, but also our, our goal, the one to whom we are ever driving toward. On that journey, we're being formed. We're being prepared, actually, for heaven. This is all a training ground, just as the the wandering in the desert was a training ground for a generation of a holy nation, uh, a people called to be God's own. So our lives are a training ground, a test, but a test like he tested the Israelites, a test that prepares, that trains for that glory that lies beyond ultimately union with the living God. And so despite our setbacks and occasionally our grumbling in the desert uh, and more than a few rebellions that likely deserve a little punishment. Through it all, God is drawing him to him closer and closer through all of those little scrapes, all of those formative moments, and even through our defeats, Mm -hmm. even through our failings, so long as when we fall into those failings, whenever we give in to sin, we return to him, uh, even those are part of that journey, teaching us to rely on this merciful, compassionate, ever-present, God Now learning to follow that spirit in daily life is both incredibly incredibly difficult and yet also incredibly simple The Holy Spirit is a promise to all of the baptized mm-hmm. We're assured of this in the in the teachings of the church you can look this up on your catechism that's the entry point. And certainly by those moment, that moment of confirmation when one is sealed with the Spirit, the gifts and the fruits of the Holy Spirit are to be in operation for all the baptized. And we don't talk about this a lot, uh, especially as Catholics, we were unfamiliar with these terms, apart from maybe preparation for our immediate confirmation. Right, And we overlook those gifts. Some of them seem radical, you know, things like healing and tongues. But there are other gifts, other gifts, like the Spirit's gift of counsel, that really ought to be very common in our lives. Uh, So long as we're walking with God, that spirit's gift of counsel is the one that might say, hey, turn left instead of turn right. Hey, you you see that guy on the park bench, maybe you want to go talk to him. It's that little inner prompting of God to take some action that most of the time we know is the right thing, most Mm -hmm. of the time. But That thing we don't really want to do, that little stirring, that little stirring. You mentioned if somebody might feel a little stirring in this conversation to consider the monastic life, that would be that little prompting, that spirit's invitation. That's that little gift of counsel that speaks to us, that guides us, that draws us according to God's plan. At first, it's a little quiet voice. Mm -hmm. But the more that we follow after him, the clearer that voice becomes, the clearer that voice becomes. At first, it's absolutely essential to have a good spiritual director, someone to, to bounce this idea off of, uh, to make sure that everything is good, sound, holy, right, and just. Uh, but as we walk it out, the Spirit does manifest Himself in, in very common yet very powerful ways in daily life. And that's ultimately the goal. That's that's the promise that we have in Christ, that that this is the power of the baptized, to, to live this walk with the Spirit, to actually know God's will and to have that knowledge of God's commandments and precepts within our own hearts. That's that Spirit's gift.
0: Today we're talking with Father Simeon Spitz, who is a Benedictine monk from St. Gregory Abbey in Shawnee, Oklahoma. You can find them by going to monksok.org. There is a whole lot more to come right after this as we explore our Lenten journey in light of the Exodus. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. Putnam, and we're continuing our conversation today with Father Simeon Spitz, who is a priest and a monk of St. Gregory's Abbey in Shawnee, Oklahoma. I've had the great pleasure of having him out here in my neck of the woods doing a parish mission, looking at the Exodus, that Exodus journey and how God led his people out of slavery and into the fulfillment of a promise uh, as a template for us to better understand our own Lenten journey. Uh, before we get too far into this, Father, first of all, thank you for being on the show. Welcome back.
1: Thanks for having me. Uh,
0: I was on Twitter the other day and noticed someone who um, who had broken their Lenten fast, and they were uh, crestfallen. And they they talked about how awful they felt because they had broken it. And different people are coming on and telling them different things of, you know, it's okay, get back up. And um, I, I look at this, and we talked about this last week on the show, as... Uh, cleaning our house for a thing, right? I got rid of my, my upright piano because I was making room for uh, for the grand that was given to us. And it, and it could be that um, on the way getting the the piano out the door, I, I had a moment of weakness and thought, well, maybe I'll just put it over here in this corner instead of completely getting it out of the house, right? Well, if I have that moment where I break my Lenten promise, which so long as that is uh, not... Giving up on giving up a specific sin, which are lenten penances you're you're not supposed to be doing that sin anyway. the lenten penance is supposed to be something uh, devotional on top of that, but unless we're engaging in a sin uh, that then we need to confess, really all I have to do is say no no no, no, this piano that's coming really is better and pick up again and not really waste any time uh, worrying about or spending time beating myself up about the fact that three steps from the door I decided I wasn't going to do it. So talk maybe just a little bit about, and you mentioned this in your your conference today. This idea that Lent is not you know the, this penance that I'm going to hold on to this single penance and it's a badge of honor that I got all the way through it. But talk about this this journey of the penance. You mentioned maybe even a, a, a smorgasbord over the course <laughs> of Lent. I don't remember remember the term you used, but uh, talk a little bit about this idea of. What happens if you fail on a Lenten
1: penance or so forth? Well, what happens when you fail in a Lenten penance is what happens when you fail in a matter of sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are two very different feelings. Now, let's talk about sin first. If I've done something wrong and I feel a certain remorse for that, uh, a desire, a movement to repent, to return, to go to confession, that's good, right, holy, and just. That's, that's contrition. That's, that's good, that is from God. There's another feeling that goes beyond that, that contrition, that compunction. The other feeling is the one that says, well, if you've already fallen this far, you might as well give up completely. Mm-hmm. Why don't you just lay in the mud for a little while? It'll be fine, you know? Or or even worse, and, and more deviously, you're not worthy of confession. You're just going to sin again. You're just going to fall. What's the purpose? What's the purpose? Uh, that shame, that shame that can drive us to Repeat the sin again because of the the horrible feelings we have that shame that keeps us away from from repentance reconciliation, that that shame that keeps us from rising and walking again with Christ, that's not from God, that's from the other guy, right. and and that's what keeps us down. So that same rule would apply to a Lenten penance if you've taken something up and you really want to to make that endeavor for the entire Lent and. I'm assuming here that it's not something that's just totally crazy. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people can take on overboard Lenten penances that are just impossible to maintain. I'm going to pray 37 rosaries every day of the week. <laughs> it's, it's crazy, but, but people might want to come close to that. They see the good of the rosary. They want to fill their time with that, and they, they, they bite off more than they can chew. If that's the case and it's something extreme, it might be okay to dial back. However, let's assume that it's not that. It's not something extreme. It's something that one has chosen because they knew that it would perhaps be a little difficult, but attainable, but they've already failed the very first week of Lent. It's Ash Wednesday, ashes on the forehead, and whatever it was that was adapted, already fallen that very first day. What do you do? Well, Option one is to give up and say, well, I've already failed, so there's no sense in trying to keep this Lent in practice. That's more in mode of, of shame, of falling away. The other is to say, yes, I failed. And I acknowledge that. And no, I'm none too happy about it. But I saw the good in this penance before. I still see the good in this penance now. And I'm going to take it up anew. We're not one and done with sin. (laughs) That's what the beauty of repentance is. And if anything, our penances during Lent are meant to drive home that reality that though we are sinful, we are sinful people seeking God. And that by these actions, we're drawing near to him. The very last thing we should do if we're battling our own sinful nature, is to abandon those penances that are meant to sustain us in that journey. Um, Mm -hmm. They're the helps, they're the trials, the tests we give ourselves.
0: Now, let's talk about this a little bit because perhaps someone has bitten off more than they can chew. Uh, One of the things that you mentioned in the mission was a a way to pick a good Lenten penance. So maybe someone said, oh, penance, I gave up Lent for Lent. And now they're saying, well, maybe maybe I do need to do something. Or maybe someone's bitten off more than they could chew. Or maybe someone wants to add a penance going forward in Lent. What's a way to pick a good penance that will not just be an exercise of our own ability to give up, but will actually bring some spiritual profit to us over this journey?
1: Well, if we think of Lent as a journey itself— uh Journeys come in many forms. Some can be uh, a slow and steady pace. Other times, however, we can pick up the pace as we travel. I'm a big fan of myself of trying to choose, and let me take a sidetrack and say that for monks, we're very blessed in having an abbot who sits over us. Mm-hmm. So it's the benefit of having a spiritual guide. And before we accept any penance, we first have a conversation with our abbot. And he may, helps us to make sure that we've not bitten off more than we can chew, that something is, in fact, reasonable and attainable and that won't ultimately do more harm than good. So with that in mind, we've got a good, safe baseline right. that we begin with. But I am a big fan of having what I like to call the the, the penance of the week club, uh, finding something each week, and, and maybe it changes. Maybe it changes each week that tries to address a certain weakness in our life. So I invite people to first spend time in prayer and ask God what it is that's that's gotten in the way. During the desert journey, and really during the entire monarchy of Israel, idolatry constantly creeps in. Uh, false faith leads to false practice, and the people go astray. It happens time and time and time again. It seems like every third page, this is what's right. happening. It's the same sin again. They're grumbling and they're worshiping idols. Come on, that story again? Get over it. But it's happening constantly. Our false idols aren't necessarily Baal or the Ashtoreth, um, the There's whatever it is that we place before God, those things that obscure that divine vision. Sometimes those things are outright sinful and we can recognize them for what they are. Other times, those are simply neutral things that clutter our lives. Too much television. Hey, too much radio. Not this program, of course. Too much radio, right? Um, That can be a thing. Too much of whatever it is that is blocking our vision of God. So I invite people to spend some time in, in prayer and ask God, what is it that's keeping me from you? Try to see God, long for Him, and see what it is that comes into your mind first. Maybe you go to a holy hour and you write down all of the distractions that pop into your mind first. <laughs> it can be a good uh, a good way of making a, a list of things that most likely need to be addressed, especially if they're recurring thoughts that seem that seem to keep coming back and back and back again. Or what is that thing that kept you from going to the holy hour in the first place? Mm-hmm. Certainly, what's that thing that kept you from mass? Those need to be addressed head on. So those are the afflictions, the idols that are distracting us from that vision of God and that glorious promise that he has for our lives. So how do we address that? Well, in the book of Numbers, we have another wonderful example that, 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 that provides a great image. Uh, the Israelites go figure we're grumbling. You know, they never grumble except for every third page. And as they were grumbling, the Lord decided he would send seraph serpents to bite them. And they had it coming. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> grumble, <laughs> grumble, grumble. I sometimes wonder if, you know, you know, Moses had the staff that turned into a snake. I thought maybe he might have turned it into a snake and let it loose just to take care of business and then pick it up again. We don't know. It doesn't say that, you know, but I wonder, I wonder. Well, anyway, these snakes bite the people. And when they go to Moses whining about their affliction... He goes to God and God says, well, uh, erect an image of the seraph serpents uh, known as nechoshet later. It just simply means the bronze. It's, it's, the, it's a kind of a play on words between the word for bronze and the word for snake. So this nechoshet is established. And whenever the people gaze on this image of that which afflicts them, they're healed. And that pain, that, that burning pain they had from these seraph fiery serpents is, is gone. Whenever we choose, well first let's talk about confession. When we go to confession, we're doing something not entirely unlike this action of Dehoshe. This isn't an idol itself, it's not something that's worshipped. It's that image of what afflicts us. We come face to face with our affliction. Now of course what was really afflicting the Israelites was not the serpent. That's simply the symptom. Right. What was afflicting them was their grumbling against God, and that was the thing driving a wedge between themselves in him who is their salvation. But when we come face to face with that affliction, we can challenge. We can move beyond. We can be set free from the pain and the wound that is there. Um, confession is a sacrament of healing. Reconciliation is healing. And when we go and we speak the name of that thing that has been afflicting us, that that serpent, that demon that has been biting us, chiding us, when we call it by name, and then the priest says those words of absolution, we've come face to face with our affliction. And we've been set free from that. So that works in confession that's also a good tactic to take when trying to choose a Lenten penance. When you identify those those idols, those things that stand in the way, those seraph serpents that are biting and chiding and keeping you from God, trying to choose a penance that in some way addresses those head on. And that's where this penance of the week club comes in. Whatever it is that's on the mind, whatever it is that's getting in the way, perhaps even that week, that's the one that we take the fight to and try to tackle that head on.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, one of the other things that you mentioned, Father Simeon, in your, uh, in the mission today, was this practice of as you read scripture, for your at least ten minutes a day. For those who are listening, uh, as you read through scripture and you are going about spending time in prayer, if you have a thought, a single verse that stands out, a something that speaks to you that, that resonates a little bit more than, the rest of it, you take a moment and you write it down that one line, and you put it in your pocket and carry it with you throughout the day. How has this practice uh, enriched your life, not just at the moment of obviously taking the time to read scripture and meditate on it, does enrich our life, but how have you found that practice of writing down that thing and carrying it with you um, affecting you the rest of the time?
1: First off, it helps me to to focus my thoughts. So we monks are blessed. Uh, our whole lives are ordered to give us this time with the scriptures that so many people are hungry for. Uh, so we're able to get in uh, a good couple of hours a day of spiritual reading. And St. Benedict says that during Lent, we should be getting in three hours. Now, not all read the scriptures for all three hours. Uh, church fathers are part of that. Um, uh, good holy Catholic works are part of that. But uh, I'm a Bible guy, and I like to mostly stick with the scriptures when I can. And after 45 minutes of reading, inevitably there is at least one line that just keeps popping up that really struck me in the morning Uh, for whatever reason. Sometimes I see right away away and I see its value. Other times I'm simply confused by it and I I want to roll it around in my head a little more. So I take out a little index card, a little ruled index card, write that down along with uh, the passage from which I took it, and I carry it in my pocket throughout the day. Whenever I have a little moment in choir before we begin prayers, it's a perfect time to pull out that card, recite that one little verse, which then calls to mind all of the reading that I'd done that morning. It's a great memorization tool as far as recalling large chunks of scripture together, so it serves that benefit, but it also serves to clarify the mind throughout the day. It becomes a little touchstone that I can return to and offer that one line as a particular focus for my prayer. We monks engage, in, alongside many other religious and diocesan clergy, in praying the Liturgy of the Hours. We pray at my monastery the, the entire one-week psalter, all 150 psalms, on a weekly basis. And we have this regular touchstone of the psalms. Sometimes that recurrence can can actually numb us. Sometimes mm-hmm. it strikes, sometimes it falls to the back. But if we can prime that pump with prayer, a la my little index card and the one little verse, new things leap out from the page. So it serves to focus those thoughts. There's also the hidden blessing that I use these index cards as bookmarks after <laughs> I've used them. I don't like to throw anything away. I'm trying to recycle everything I've got. And so most of the books on my shelves have cards that in the past I've written down these little sayings on, uh, these, these little passages from scripture. And I'm amazed sometime when someone asks for a book and I happen to have it on my shelf, I go to pull the thing, and I always pull out my index card. And more times than once, (laughs) that passage that struck me when was something I needed to have in that moment. Uh, (laughs) I wonder if God didn't guide them to ask for that book just to get me to consult that scripture verse again.
0: Well, and, and even further than that, I wonder if God didn't prompt you for that scripture way back when, knowing that the book would be out when you needed it. I mean, the, the, these pictures of, of God's understanding of the time that he created and the providence and the, the ways that he goes about to ensure that we have what we need when we need it, right? Uh, out of curiosity, do you happen to date the, the, on your index card what day you had that thought?
1: I don't. I just, I, I, I do one, maybe two at most per card uh, as space allows, but I've never dated them. I've never dated them. Now they do get yellowed over time, yeah. Uh, and I can tell. For example, my um, the the Confessions of Saint Augustine, uh, at least the copy that I read back when I've now got three copies, but the one that right. I had to read for seminary, uh, that that one's got a little bit of uh, <laughs> a little bit of age on it. Yeah. Uh, the one that I pulled out today from my uh, my favorite Lenten book, which is Spiritual Combat uh, by Scupoli, good monk uh, mm-hmm. who wrote that. And so I found last year's Lenten card, my last Lenten thought that I picked up this time on Ash Wednesday to go for another round. We're
0: talking today with father Simeon Spitz. He is a Benedictine monk and priest at St. Gregory's Abbey in Shawnee, Oklahoma. Thank you father for being with us. It's been a pleasure. Have you been geeking out on this conversation? Is is your mind blown? Well, I saved the best mind blowing little bit of information for the extra segment. Each and every week we record a little bit more, a couple extra questions with our guest, and we give those to our Patreon supporters. Those are the people who keep us on the air. It's a great community of people who love the work that we do and also don't mind getting a little bit of those extra Patreon goodies as well. Uh, You can join that community for as little as $5 a month, and it's really easy. You go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, which you are going to do anyway because you wanted to share this week's episode with your friends And that's the place where you can find all the archives and share it on your social media. But while you're there, up in the top right-hand corner of the page, you'll also see a link that says support the show Patreon. And I encourage you to go over there and join this week. $5 is the entry level. There's other levels that will get you different perks. And I encourage you, join, because this specific segment, you get all the segments, all the backlog as well but this specific segment is worth the price of admission all by itself. So I encourage you to do that over at OutsideTheWalls.com, and now we're going to turn our attention to our reading from Scripture and Church History. If you're paying attention, you noticed that beginning last week, the show is a little bit longer, and we don't take quite as many breaks, and yet even so, I feel like I have a hard time getting everything in. Uh, The space just gets filled. So let's go ahead and start with our reading from Scripture, which comes from the book of Deuteronomy. Moses spoke to the people, saying, This day the Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes and decrees. Be careful, then, to observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. Today you are making this agreement with the Lord. He is to be your God, and you are to walk in his ways and observe his statutes, commandments, and decrees and to hearken to his voice. And today the Lord is making this agreement with you. You are to be a people peculiarly his own, as he promised you, and provided you keep all his commandments, he will then raise you high in praise and renown and glory above all other nations he has made, and you will be a people sacred to the Lord your God, as he has promised. That reading comes from the book of Deuteronomy. And, you know, we, we think about the children of Israel and the, the whole story of the Exodus. And as Christians, very often our mind immediately goes to um, strict observance of the law, right? And, and this um, impossible-to-keep thing, because, you know, Paul talks about uh, that the law was powerless to save us. But what the law did was it pointed out Uh, those things that were sin and actually made it easier for us to sin, but that the law is not bad. This is all in Romans 6, 7, and 8, and it's uh, well worth the time to go read that. Uh, But that's the picture that we have, is that somehow that legalistic strict observance was God's plan. But listen to the invitation here. This is an invitation to be careful and to observe with all your heart and soul these laws that are being made in agreement. And God's covenant here was that he is to be your God. And you're to walk in his ways and observe his statutes and commandments and decrees and to hearken to his voice. This means that God is going to be speaking to them. God was longing to walk with them. And so this is very much the same thing that God is longing for us to do as well. And we find ourselves very often easily falling into that same desire to do things perfectly and to to follow this set of beliefs and to check off the checks in our check boxes uh, off of our list and to miss the fact that God is calling us and wooing us into this relationship to be a people peculiarly His own. Our reading from church history this week comes from Saint Irenaeus from Against Heresies, and and I have to actually jump in right here and say last week I misquoted. Uh, I said that the quote, the glory of God is man fully alive, was from St. Athanasius, and it was not. It's St. Irenaeus, uh, and so pardon me that slip of the tongue. We're going to go ahead now, though, and look at St. Irenaeus unpacking for us the same picture uh, that we've been talking about with Father Simeon today. From the beginning, God created man out of his own generosity— He chose the patriarchs to give them salvation. He took his people in hand, teaching them, unteachable as they were, to follow him. He gave them prophets, accustoming man to bear his spirit and to have communion with God on earth. He who stands in need of no one gave communion with himself to those who need him. Like an architect, He outlined the plan of salvation to those who sought to please him. By his own hand, he gave food in Egypt to those who did not see him. To those who were restless in the desert, he gave a law perfectly suited to them. To those who entered the land of prosperity, he gave a worthy inheritance. He killed the fatted calf for those who turned to him as father and clothed them with the finest garment. In so many ways, he was training the human race to take part in the harmonious song of salvation. For this reason, John in the book of Revelation says, His voice was as the voice of many waters. The Spirit of God is indeed a multitude of waters, for the Father is rich and great. As the word passed among all these people, he provided help in generous measure for those who were obedient to Him, by drawing up a law that was suitable and fitting for every circumstance. He established a law for the people, governing the construction of the tabernacle and the building of the temple, the choice of Levites, the sacrifices, the offerings, the rites of purification, and the rest of what belonged to worship. He Himself needs none of these things. He is always filled with all that is good, Even before Moses existed, he had within himself every fragrance of all that is pleasing. Yet he sought to teach his people, always ready though they were, to return to their idols. Through many acts of indulgence, he tried to prepare them for perseverance in his service. He kept calling them to what was primary by means of what was secondary, that is, through the foreshadowings to the reality through the things of time to the things of eternity, through the things of the flesh to the things of the Spirit, through earthly things to heavenly things. As he said to Moses, you will fashion all the things according to the pattern that you saw on the mountain. For 40 days, Moses was engaged in remembering the words of God, the heavenly patterns, the spiritual images, the foreshadowings of what was to come. St. Paul said, They drank from the rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. After speaking of the things that are in the law, he continues, All these things happened to them as symbols. They were written to instruct us, on whom the end of the ages has come. Through foreshadowings of the future, they were learning reverence for God and perseverance in His service. The law was therefore a school of instruction for them and a prophecy of what was to come. That reading again comes from Against Heresies by St. Irenaeus. And uh, one of the things he didn't mention, he talked about Paul uh, mentioning the, the connections to the Exodus. But the, the author of Hebrews also does this in Hebrews 8.5. He compares the priesthood of Jesus with the priesthood of the tabernacle. And, he, and he's talking about those who served in this tabernacle. And he said, they worship in a copy and a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary, as Moses was warned when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For he says, see that you make everything according to the pattern shown on you on the mountain. And so here we have, uh, if we want to know what heavenly worship is like, we come to the book of Exodus and we watch how they worship. And of course, a lot of the things that we do in the Catholic mass are connected to that heavenly worship all the way back. If you watch the, the pattern that's given to him and the instructions on uh, the, the sanctuary, you see a lot of similarities. And that's a show for another day, but it's all to say that we are still walking in these things that were given. They're not, they've not been abrogated. It's not that they went away. It's that they were magnified. Uh, as as it says even here, that, that God wanted to write the law not on stone tablets, but on our hearts. God wants our Lent not to be this ritualistic thing merely for the sake of, hey, look what I can pull off, but he wants this to get to the place where his law is written on our hearts and we keep that law to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. that we keep that law out of affection for him and desire for him and that we allow his presence, his Holy spirit to indwell us just as he walked with his people by putting a spirit in their midst and the tabernacle above the mercy seat, above the ark of the covenant. He wants to have that same presence dwell in our hearts so that that promise can be fulfilled, that he would be our God and we would be his people. Lord, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's all the time we have for this week. Thank you for tuning in. Today's show is brought to you by Kenton, Paige, Keithley, and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link, and join their numbers. While you're there, join us on social media. Be part of the ongoing conversation, Facebook.com slash Step Outside the Walls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls.